The drugs that we're talking about here are not for bodybuilders. Testosterone, growth hormone, insulin, telemosartan, down the list we go, metformin. Many of the drugs that I advocate are in lifetime human clinical use. This is a conversation not about human use. This is not a conversation about lifetime use. This is a conversation about dosage over time. Bodybuilding about selfies, steroids, magazines, and muscles? How do I become a successful pro bodybuilder or fitness competitor? Where do I even start if I'm new? And the biggest question of all, what are the judges looking for anyway? Even today with the internet, many people first discover bodybuilding by word of mouth. The lack of regulation has caused a boom of unqualified coaches, scattered info, biased advice, dangerous protocols, and posing trends that are a hot mess. After 20 years in the business, I have seen it all. Week after week, I'm going to talk about taboo topics that get swept under the rug, provide you tips and strategies to gain a competitive edge and stand out on stage in any division or federation. I'm going to answer all the burning industry questions without the bias. I have competed across six federations, earned pro status in three, and judged in two. I've coached posing and choreography for men and women in all federations and divisions. I know just how much competing means to you. I'm your host, Michelle Welcome, and you are listening to the Everything Else in Bodybuilding podcast. Be sure to download your free guide, Five Things Every Bodybuilder and Fitness Competitor Needs to Know Before Your Next Show at eenbb.com. That's www.eeinbb.com. Welcome back to the Everything Else in Bodybuilding podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Welcome. I have my co-host, Vasilios Metropolis. Soon to be full-time host, if I go my way. And today we're going to be talking about why 90% of PED models are dangerous and inaccurate. And our guest today is an expert on this subject who has a massive knowledge on PEDs, hormones, metabolism control, and vitamins. He ruffles a lot of feathers in the fitness and bodybuilding industry because he calls out highly influential and well-known people on their lack of facts and the quality of information they share about PEDs and how it affects physiology. And we're going to myth bust some of those protocols today. But first, Victor, can you share, this is Victor Black, by the way, can you share a little bit about you and how you came from being a really smart guy? I believe you're an engineering background. How did you go from being a really smart guy to offering to be on video calls with healthcare providers to come up with PED and IED protocols? Uh, firstly, thank you for the invitation to the podcast, guys. I, I very much appreciate any opportunity we can to help to educate and to influence the what I what I refer to as the tribe. I appreciate that. So thank you very much. Yeah, yeah so, definitely. So let, let me just begin by saying, so I'm, I'm clear up front, I have no academic credentials or qualifications in, the, in this discipline whatsoever. Yeah, I, I don't even hold a, a personal training certificate. I'm very much what I consider to be a, a recreational user of training, nutritional principles, of performance-enhancing drug principles. I've been training for 40 years now. I'm 55 years old. And I was just incredibly frustrated by the lack of quality, what I would call evidence-based content that was available for enhancement practices. Most people today would be familiar with guys like Dr. Brad Schoenfeld and, and, and many others. I, I, I hesitate to name one individual because there's many that have done remarkable things for the, the natural training community and the enhanced training community, to be fair, 
but they tend to focus on training principles and nutritional principles and supplementational principles. And they've called out a lot of the, you know, the, 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 we could call it bro science. We could call it scams. You could call it however you want to position it. They've called a lot of people out saying, look, there's no quality evidence to support that practice over there. You mean a simple example to get us rolling is most people would be familiar with the concept that today really nobody's pushing BCAAs anymore. And, and, they were hugely popular, you know, 10 years ago. They were, that was a multi-million dollar must-have supplement for almost everybody at one point, BCAAs. Today is, you know, we realize that, well, as long as you're taking enough protein intake, you mean, those three amino acids are really, ah, meh, maybe, maybe, but it's, it's a very small maybe. So we've gone from a must-have thing that you have to spend your money on, otherwise you won't be successful. And that's kind of how it was pitched by some of the supplement companies to a highly questionable practice that very few people follow today, if, if that makes sense. I'm attempting in my own way to do the same thing for the enhanced community, to take a lot of the, the misunderstandings, a lot of the mythologies, and simply provide credible evidence-based information for people to make decisions about whether or not that's a, a, a rational model to follow. Now, if you know much about the evidence-based community, there's a lot of things that they broke. There's a lot of myths that they broke open in that process and upset a lot of individuals and ruffled a few feathers. But you know, and it's fair to say that the misunderstandings, the lack of communication, the lack of quality evidence is even more so or even more profound in the evidence-based community. Oh, sorry, in the in the enhanced community. Yeah. So everything you said is completely true. Uh, the reality is, though, I'm not a PhD. I don't hold academic credentials. Yes, I have a, a background in military engineering. I'm a weapons engineer, so I have, you know, a, a technical background, as it were, per se, but not in not in this discipline. So I appreciate the opportunity to come on the show and and and, and talk about some of these things. Yeah, so excited to have you, Victor. Awesome, that's great. So, I mean, just quick question then. So, if you go from what your background is, did you get involved literally just from? What I mean from lack of wanting just to from, know or wanting to do or what exactly? Just from doing. I mean, a classic example would be twenty years. I, I trained and competed for twenty years as a natural. I wasn't terribly good, but I certainly competed at the amateur level, natural bodybuilding. Yeah. After twenty years, I decided to open the enhanced door. I, I I literally just felt that I was putting in a tremendous amount of time and effort into training. You know, practices are not really making any progress. And anyone that's in this domain can, can relate to that story. You literally reach this point of diminishing returns where returns are so small, you feel like you're not making any progress at all. Mm. Yeah. When I decided to educate myself about these things, I went out and did what I thought was the right thing. And that is bought a copy of every, you know, high profile book on the market and began reading. Yeah, this was, I won't say pre-internet, but it was right at the cusp of the internet becoming the communications medium. Yeah, 20, 20 years ago. That's kind of, I don't know how Google, how old Google is, but you, you can picture the time frame I'm talking about. And, and very quickly, when I started reading these books with the engineer's eye, I started to realize that there were you know, disconnects between what these books were saying and, 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 and what makes sense. A simple example, since, uh, you know, in, I ruffle a lot of feathers. I bought a copy of Bill Llewellyn's book, you know, the, the Anabolics series of books that he's produced. He's in his 12th variant today. And immediately when you start reading it, you realize that there's information in that, that 
any logical mind is going to start questioning. A, a simple example would be, and I've used this many times, um, you know, a lot of people believe that trembolone is a, a very androgenic compound. It has a an anabolic to androgenic rating that people quote as 500 to 500. Most people heard that at some point in time. But then in clinical practice, this was a drug that was given to women. So just those two simple facts. If you know nothing else about anabolic steroids, you have to go, well, why did they do that? That doesn't make any sense. The whole point of anabolic steroids was to create a class of compounds that retain the potential therapeutic benefits of testosterone so we could give it to women, yeah, but at lower levels of virilization outcomes. So it doesn't, why would they give a drug that was five times more androgenic to testosterone? So the moment then you start to ask that single question, you realize, well, it's not. Trembolone is a steroid of SARMs. And we've known this for, you know, since the beginning of time. So there's a disconnect between what was being presented to our tribe in books like anabolic steroid guides and 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 something like the, the and what the body of clinical literature represents in clinical practice. So the moment well, I started quick, doing real quick yeah, about so, those books. Now yeah. were the people that published those books, were they PhDs? What kind of credentials did they have to be providing this information to the public? I think it's fair to say that over the years we have had influences in our community that range from academically credentialed to, to sim simply brots. There's been a range, yeah? But there has been one common thread amongst them, and that is it's almost been like a, a Chinese whisper. Someone at some point said something and that, that got drawn into the, into the next iteration of the materials and, and, it, and it became copy-paste, 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 yeah? So if you go looking, the obvious question is, well, Bill must have got that from somewhere. Where, where did he get that information from? And there was a book published in 1967 uh, by, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Paul Vieta, I believe it was basically, that, that nominated that as being the anabolic potential and the androgenic potential of those drugs. So it's in Bill's book, but it's in a preceding book as well. So it's kind of just come down the line, as it were. So to answer your question, I think there's been a spread of different skill sets, but the one thing that we haven't done a great job on is fact-checking. Yeah, 100%. You know, Victor, that leads me right to the first, one of my first questions was, and you you somewhat answered this, really, it was, you know, the transfer of information and the evolution of information from books to internet. But at, in, in just for anybody listening who's never heard anything in my background, my background in bodybuilding fitness has been by osmosis through my wife here for the last eight years. Obviously, as a teenager, you see magazines, so on and so forth, you're in and out of gyms doing whatever, but I'm a, a musician by trade first. So fitness... Yep came second in my life. Now it's full time. I've been obviously involved in it for a long time, but my information and perception of everything that's been presented to me is of mixed use, both from the layman's like, what the hell is this? What does that even mean? What's an anabolic? I have no idea. All the way to like, okay, now I'm starting to understand some of the names and uses, natural versus not, federation, so on and so forth. But a lot of the questions for me always stem from like, how did we go from bodybuilding being on magazines and just cool to like now PED use and in, in teenagers and what's safe, what's not, where do you draw the line? Mm -hmm. Where do you, where do you even start? Like, where mm -hmm. do you get this ev evidence-based information? You are in that murky area of like published information of what is or isn't like you just mentioned something about one particular drug and how that, that drug was used for women. And that's just mind blowing to me. Like who woke up one day and said, Hey, if this thing, 
this particular substance could be good in some form or another if we use it in this direction towards this particular species to help them with this thing. We went mm. from one person's idea to teenagers wanting to look good on Instagram and everyone getting jacked all the time and all different, there, there, different protocols. Like where, where and how did all that come about? There is a there is a thread if you follow it. One of the great ironies here is very often you'll hear things people say things like there's no good information for women when it comes to performance enhancing drugs. I don't know whether you agree with that, but it's something that people say, yeah, that most of the information is biased towards men. Now, the interesting thing is, but if you actually look at human clinical practice of these drugs, because the origin point for these drugs is, well, these drugs weren't developed for bodybuilders or powerlifters or strength athletes. They were developed for disease state treatment. And most of the drugs that we use in bodybuilding today, ironically, were actually developed to meet the needs of women. And, and, and the elderly, the, what we would call the androgen sensitive. In other words, we had the drug testosterone. We've been synthesizing testosterone since the 1930s, but we understood when we gave it to women for therapeutic benefit, we realized the therapeutic benefits, but also with those benefits came the specter of virilization or masculinization. So really the, the development of anabolic steroids, if we, steer, if we start with a, with, a, with a hormone testosterone and then begin with derivatives of testosterone, the force that drove that was the ability to give women, the elderly and even children, a drug that carried the therapeutic benefits of testosterone, but at lower threat of virilization. So kind of the thread that you're after there is saying, okay, so there were people that realized there were drugs being developed, you know, that provided, you know, increases in protein accretion, for example, increases in force production in clinical benefit. Can we as, you know, in, as, as recreational athletes and, and professional athletes in some cases, I would dare to beg that it began with the professional athletes. They're always looking for an edge and they always have, right? Started dipping into that, that resource pool. But what we didn't carry with it was the awareness of how we apply these drugs. And again, you know, the first big caveat is what, how is it possible that in our tribe, in our recreational user community tribe, in our professional user community tribe, we can say things like, there's no really good quality educational content for women when these are drugs developed for women. That there's a disconnect there. Like so, something must be wrong. And the hard reality is, well, the information is there, but nobody's ever bothered to translate it correctly from you know the the what we would call the the the, the evidence-based community, the clinical application community in, into our tribe. No one's bothered to pull that with you. I'll give you a simple example. There's been a, a rise and rise of of the of the drug called SARM, selective antigen receptor modulators, over the last decade or so. It's actually now on its decline in part because of the work that I've been doing to explain this. But the whole point of SARMs was never to solve a problem that, that men face. Men have very little to fear from the application of anabolic steroids, understanding that so steroids were developed to offset some of the negative consequence of use for women of testosterone, understood. There was really never a successful re complete removal of androgenic potential from steroids. and so. The current generation of research is in an area called SARMs, where they're trying to retain the anabolic potential of testosterone, but move that, that very last vestige of androgenic impact that comes with anabolic steroids. It's, it was massively reduced, but there's still some there. So the next step, the whole folly of men following down that path is silly because you understand, so you're chasing a solution to a problem that does not exist in men. 
Like it, it's when you sit there and think about it. So here's a drug yet again being developed for the androgen sensitive. They're trying to solve this list of problems and yet none of those problems apply to healthy young men. Why are we even down that path? It, it makes no rational sense when you understand what is actually happening, the disconnect between our tribal behaviours and clinical practice or research practice. I don't know what the answer is. Go ahead, sorry. And real quick, can you explain to the audience, for the people that don't know, the new people that are listening to this in their likes, arms, or listening to all the, you know, these words that are being shared and specifically sure. androgenic and anabolic, can you explain on a basic level what, what do those two things mean? Yeah, so I'll keep it real, real layman's term. If I need, if I need to lift it up a level, then please tell me. I would, I would broadly say we would use the term androgenic to describe any outcome that we would associate with with masculine in its masculine mas, or male sexual traits. Yeah. So if you looked at anabolic and you associate that with in layman's term, hypertrophic outcomes and increase in protein accretion, you know, many benefits on bone and other tissue. But if you said, okay, so there's a, there's a, there's a splitting of the discussion here. Anabolic will set aside as being uh, contributing to hypertrophic outcomes, the increase of protein tissue yeah, and androgenic as in contributing to male secondary sexual characteristics. Does that, does it make sense that language? Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, I, I've heard you mention in, in an episode actually today something that I'm unaware of really till you, which is what you call different metabolic pathways, and kind mm -hmm. of like the outsider layman, I, I hear the word anabolic or steroid thrown around all the time, right? right. But I, I've never heard these different metabolic pathways before. And you mentioned, you know, doing things simultaneously, and this will lead into the black basal model that I believe we're going to talk about a little bit, but you mentioned using all these pathways in synchronicity to do things potentially in a safe way. So I'm very interested in what that is and how it all kind of came about and what it all means. So, so let me, you have to understand the historical use of performance enhancing drugs to understand what the future holds. So what we used to do in the past was we would historically start with oral steroids. Now, the reason we would start with oral steroids was there was a certain phobia to self-administration of injectable drugs. One can understand that. I'm em empathetic to that. So everybody historically, when I started, started with drugs like Dianabol or you know, uh, Anavar, drugs that you took in a, in a tablet form. Yeah. And then typically the escalation process was from oral anabolic steroids to injectable anabolic steroids was a, was a journey people went on. You know, you did that for a little while, then you wanted to increase the dose, you went to injectable. Eventually what happened was people escalated the dose of anabolic steroids to the point where they reached the point of what we would call toxicity. They were taking so much of the drug that they realized they, they simply couldn't take any more anabolic steroids. And the dosages, it's fair to say, have grown and grown and grown and grown and eventually Anyone with some common sense went, ah, that, that's, as, that's as far as I'm comfortable pushing. And then what they would typically do is ask the question, what other classes of drugs exist that I could put with this that don't play a more toxic pressure on that pathway, but contribute something to the, to the overall goal of hypertrophic outcome? The obvious one that people typically stepped into sec on a second basis was recombinant human growth hormone. Yeah. And then they would do that. They would raise the gross hormone dose alongside the highest amount of androgens they could take until, for most people, they ran out of money. The, the, it wasn't so much a toxic discussion about growth hormone, but a financial one. And when they spent their budget, they would move to the next class of drug and the next class of drug. Does that make sense, that kind of 
linear progression. That's that's just how it was done for 20 years. Yeah, and, 100%. you know, when 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 someone who was an amateur, someone that was like you know, what you call a recreational user of these drugs, spoke to someone that was more elite and they said, I'm thinking about growth hormone. Literally, that was like Sean saying, you're only a recreational user. You're simply you know, not a, a candidate for something like growth hormone. But the great irony, of course, is, well, growth hormones use is more limited by what you can afford rather than toxic outcome. So that conversation doesn't really make any sense. Yes, I could understand if someone said, look, I have financial constraints. Okay, I get it. But let's assume you're dealing with someone in their 50s and, and money is no longer, you know, you know, they're at the point in their life they can afford discretionary income choices. Yeah. Why would you steer them away from growth hormone? It doesn't really make any sense. The idea of putting some steroids and some growth hormone together, plausibly, you end up with a one plus one equals three outcome but at lower toxic consequence of the first drug if you introduce it earlier in the process. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah? So, so the whole premise here is rather than starting on pathway number one, anabolic steroids via the anden receptor and increasing the dose until you reach a point of toxicity and then going to the next class of drug and then the next class of drug or the next class of drug, the, the black basal model is simply based on why don't we very moderately modulate every metabolic pathway that we can easily and safely rather than pushing too hard on anyone? It's a very simple premise, yeah? And the idea being is instead of having creating a pool of toxicity around one of these pathways, we just basically spread the, the load, spread the work, as it were, across multiple metabolic pathways, restricting ourselves to drugs that are, are offer us the most benign or the or the gentlest systemic stress outcome that we can create over a lifetime of use. It's completely the opposite way that things were done before. Before you started with one, turned up the volume up to 10, start with an next pathway, turn the volume up to 10, start with the next pathway, turn the volume. I'm simply saying we should be starting earlier. Now, the criticism, the feedback to that model is very simple and very fair. But Victor, that's more moving parts and more to learn and plausibly more expensive. And I wear that. Yeah. But I think it's fair to say, but cost shouldn't drive all of our decisions. Well, health has a cost to it. Also, what percentage yeah. of people do you think are in the other model? Not the not your model, the basal model. What do you what do you think? How many of the bodybuilders out there are following just that protocol where they blasting number one and then going on to the next one? GH, it seemed like that was number two. That's, that's just the way it's done. <laughs> that's, so is that's, it like a 99% except for like the people that you work with? Uh, I, 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 one of the things I would argue, the reason I've ruffled so many feathers before, if you, if you took someone that entered the debate about say, you know, volume versus intensity in training today. Yeah. So understand, but the moment they open their mouth to speak, you know, they, they have millions of advocates for what they're talking about because there's millions of people that lean into volume or there's millions of people that lean into the historical use of intensity. I would argue the moment I started speaking seven years ago, I was the, the only person in the world doing this model, me and my, my clients. Yeah. So it was not 99%. It was 99.9% .9 of the community. That's what, that's just what we did. We started with anabolic steroids we took that to its its logical toxic outcome as, as much as we could tolerate on a blast cruise model until we saw this is the whole premise of cycling. If you if you've heard the term anabolic steroid cycle, yeah, the entire premise is we're going to use so much anabolic steroids. 
that ultimately we know in our back of our mind that this is not sustainable for you know for years. You you, you get a certain number of weeks. Concern over toxicity means you stop and you back off and you give yourself a break and you push on. That's the very definition of anabolic steroid cycling. You know what you're doing is unsustainable. Yeah. What I'm proposing is we try and figure out. So let's work out how much drugs that we can take on a sustainable basis and apply those stimuli towards the outcome. And then let's tolerate, let's, let's closely monitor our progress along the way and figure out whether we can live on that amount of drugs. Because you have to understand the drugs that we're talking about here are not for bodybuilders, testosterone, growth hormone, insulin, telemosartan, down the list we go, metformin. Many of the drugs that I advocate are in lifetime human clinical use. This is a conversation not about human use. This is not a conversation about lifetime use. This is a conversation about dosage over time. Interesting. And how does it differ from men to women, the protocols? So the interesting thing is women are a completely different conversation to men. And the problem is, it's fair to say, I don't know, you don't need to agree with me, but in my opinion, most male coaches tend to treat women as little men. They tend to approach it as saying, look, you know, you're going to do everything my male athletes do, but you're going to do like, we're going to just going to scale it down because you're a woman sort of thing. And I would argue that's the first floor of the model. We need to approach female training and we need to approach female nutrition and we need to approach female enhancement practices with a with a blank piece of paper. A, a classic example would be women are so exquisitely sensitive to growth promotion agents that the reality is, is that, uh, you know, we're giving them dosages that don't to- cause toxic outcome. A simple example, when we if we just limit the conversation to androgens, anabolic steroids, right? There is a group of women biologically born as women that wish through whatever circumstance to be identified as the male gender, the transgender community, okay? So the endocrinologist society are more than happy to give that cohort of women enough androgens so they physically identify as men to someone walking down the street. They sound like a man. They have physical characteristics of men. Of course, biologically, they retain the, 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 the fact that they were born a female, right? So the concern isn't about organ health. This is a conversation with women about virilization. The conversation about men is about organ health, brain health, kidney health, heart health. The conversation about women, because the dosage is so low, and nothing to do with those things. It's a conversation about women. And the best evidence I can give you, you do realize that there's an entire cohort of women effectively purposely trying to induce the problems that female bodybuilders are trying to remove. What a fascinating sub, what what a fascinating cohort. This is a classic example. When I introduced the concept of wanting to talk about transgender therapies and using transgender as a data set that we can look at, say, look, imagine if you had a group of men that were taking that so much drugs that they were deliberately trying to induce the side effects that we, I would be all over that. What does it say? What does it say? And yet, the very fact that I said it upset thousands of women because they felt offended by the fact they didn't identify themselves as being transgender. This is just immature. Well, what, it's an what, interesting thing that you bring up because I do want to make the point. You mentioned, in fact, I'd love for you to share, what is the average dose given to a transgender female on a weekly basis in order to elicit those side effects, in order for them to transform from biological male to female? If you can share, or sorry, my bad, <laughs> the other direction. <laughs> so, so it's, male to uh, female to male. 
it, it, it's fair to say that there has always been a, a range of drug protocols. Yeah. What I would like to focus on. So what's the minimum amount? You know, at what, at what point does this discussion begin? And it's 50 milligrams of testosterone a week is really what we would say from 50 up is what is used in clinical practice. So if you have a woman that's using, you know, like, again, if you look at the, the let's just use some threshold. So testosterone replacement therapy for women, a vastly different practice from transgender treatment, like it's not even in the same category, but it's on a spectrum if you understand the conversation. So testosterone replacement therapy begins at three milligrams per week, three, okay? And transgender begins at 50, okay? So somewhere in between there is a conversation that we can have about enhancement practices. Obviously, we want to lean as closely as we can towards replacement practice rather than we can about a, a transgender. But the point I was making is very often, like you said at, at the beginning, I have upset people. Why? I don't understand for the life of me why the female enhancement community hasn't been all over this literature for 50 years. It's the perfect data set for us to discuss because what we're trying to do is we're trying to create an outcome in women that doesn't cause concern over health but we've gone too far with a virilization outcome. So what can we learn from that? And what I would argue is, well, we, we don't want to do this, 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 and this. These are the takeaways from that process. But just discussing it offends a tremendous number of people. Well, I think some of that has to do with a lot of women, unfortunately, again, this is word of mouth for me. I've been in the industry for 20 years myself, competing, coaching, and judging. So I've seen a lot, talked a lot, heard a lot. And there's a lot of women who hadn't, didn't even know that was going to happen to them. They're listening to a coach and they're trusting this coach who's got all these trophies and, you know, showing all these amazing transformations. And they're just following their coach. And you'd be surprised how many women reach, reached out to me privately and said, hey, you know, this is the protocol that I got from my coach. What do you think? And I'm like, I think you need to start exercising first. Correct. And, and, and this is goes back to the point whereby I am very outspoken where I try to hold historical educators to account, that that statement comes from Dan Duchesne. Unashamedly, Dan Duchesne was of the attitude that, that, that virilization only happens through the application of testosterone. You cannot virilize a woman through anabolic steroids. This is plainly just not, not correct. But it's what he taught. That's in black and white in his books. Like if you see a woman in the locker room and she has a hairy back, you know what she's taking. She's taking testosterone. Mm. These are these are his words. In my opinion, people that say things like this must be held to account. There's no clinical evidence to support that statement at all on any level, any time in history have we had that philosophy. But someone in the bodybuilding community has taken that tribe, so has taken that takeaway from the clinical literature. So yes, the, the information that women have very often, I find when you start talking to people is they just, they've never heard these things before. They didn't realize, I mean, when we talk about testosterone levels, we have three or four fabulous sets of data. What about women that suffer from hyperandrogenic outcomes as a result of PCOS? Very interesting. I would like to know about that. What about the application of anabolic steroids for clinical practice like estrogen-mediated breast cancer? answer. Very nice. I would like to know about that. Mm. What about the elevation of testosterone during pregnancy? I'm sure you're aware during the third trimester of pregnancy, women often reach testosterone levels approaching that of male physiological range. Like It's very interesting. Let's talk about that. 
This is not how we've approached the application of knowledge in our tribe historically. In other words, what bodies of evidence do we have to discuss Mm. about elevated androgen state, not in bodybuilders, but in other people that we can study and we can draw takeaways from? We've just never approached the subject like that. It's interesting. It's interesting. It kind of brings back to what I was saying, like, how did we go from you know, magazines and bodybuilding and just positive influence over image to where we are today. And we're talking about identity crossover in different tribes, as you were mentioning, you know, between men and female and in between and everything in between. So it's, what's interesting to me is what you mentioned with health, how women, biologically born women deal with, uh, you know, virilization versus men dealing with organ issues. I I would want to have the discussion around like, who makes the decisions of what's good, what's right, what's wrong? I mean, ultimately, this is all about identity, right? We're trying mm. to identify, we're trying to grow into the image of which we see ourselves. And that's becoming skewed in so many different ways. And so how does that affect, like, why is it okay for a biological woman to take a certain amount of whatever to get to a certain image and in that image potentially damage her body or now his body, it be okay or not okay, and vice versa for men. Why is it okay for men to be in a direction where we can do something just for image, but it's more manly, it's more acceptable? I mean, ultimately, are we doing more damage? Is there any safe outcome in any way? Are we developing a healthier species overall? Like, can we live for 200 years if we fight the, find the right formula? Like, you know what I mean? It's really uh, real. Uh, 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 this 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 is at the heart of what I'm trying to teach. So there's a, there's a couple of threads. Let me pull on a couple of threads. The first one is I would argue that such a thing as supernatural man plausibly does exist. So we're taking an individual that does not today enjoy an endocrine profile of what is plausibly possible in the human species and giving it to them artificially. That's a very interesting conversation because it becomes plausibly safer for you than natural bodybuilding. Anyone that's been in natural bodybuilding knows the stress that you create in climbing onto the stage with that type of body composition. It's not a healthy pursuit. Somewhere in the middle ground, whereby even if you said, look, this is the endocrine profile of a natural bodybuilder standing on a stage, if we did nothing more than took these these crashes and these highs and these lows where we have basically these hormones at all-time low levels, things like cortisol spiking through the roof, and we flatten these lines out and simply use enough of the drugs to bring them back to baseline where they began the journey, right? That plausibly is safer, yeah? Isn't that TRT? Well, it's TRT, but understanding that testosterone is only one of 13 metabolic pathways. Yeah. So if you took the TRT approach and said, right, I'm going to use TRT as the as the as the benchmark, I go, all right, all we need to now do is extend the conversation out 13 times. Let's talk about your know, thyroid. Let's talk about the IGF-1 axis. Let's talk about all of the endocrine axes that we have the capacity to modulate with human approved human use drugs. Would, so the would convers- you, Victor, would you say that what you're saying that these 13 metabolic pathways, ultimately you're looking to develop something like a new vitamin protocol? Something no, that that's, would be- that's, that's what the black basic model is. We are okay. moderately modulating those pathways today through the application of drugs. It's not that the drugs come in a, in a, in a blended compound, like there's sure. testosterone, there's growth hormone, <laughs> there's, you know, like, you know, there's, there's these drugs. Yeah. It's individualized. Yeah. Each path 
pathway is is modulated by a specific compound, and there's no real way to mush them together. That's not practical, at least today. Is it sustainable? Is it something that could alter? You're saying superhuman. Is it sustainable in a way that could help us long term in health and make us live longer in a way that could benefit us if we're safe about this or understand it better? So it is fair to say yes, but there's there has to be some caveats to that, right? One of the simple caveats is that in bodybuilding, the pursuit of mass is a desirable outcome for many men. Just the sheer fact that I walk around at 260 pounds is not conducive to that outcome. You know, we have two opposing vectors here. They're going in different directions. I weigh too much. Part of the reason that my body weight is that is because of the application of growth promotion agents and and resistance training and the sheer intake of food. Just the food I take in is not sustainable over time. I eat too much food. So there is a conversation about the application of these drugs to create the supernatural man, but then some of our behaviors are not supportive of that. The food intake, the sheer weight that we carry around, if that makes sense. But the point, the point I was making is when people talk about, is that sustainable? Yes, because we're talking about drugs that are already lifetime sustainable. This is a conversation, as I said before, about dose. So you have the, your next door neighbor on the right-hand side is taking testosterone. He will take that to the day he dies. You have your neighbor on the left-hand side taking combat human growth hormone because he's growth hormone deficient. He will take that for the rest of his life. You have a neighbor across the street who's a type 1 diabetic. He will take insulin for the rest of his life. You have, you know, th- These are lifetime sustainable drugs. The conversation then is about the dose. The point I was making, however, is so that, that is possible, but what drives our community ultimately is a big part of the problem, and people don't understand this. Many women in this sport have issues with food. They just do. If you don't know that, you don't, you're, you're not a coach. If you don't know, lots and lots and lots of women that are attracted to, that are drawn to this lifestyle, are drawn to this lifestyle, bringing with them baggage. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm saying we should help the people. But you, you have to acknowledge that. That's just true. Yeah. Now, well, men many, have baggage too. I mean, oh, I haven't got to that point 100%. yet. Wait. Add ego, many, the, right? Come on. <laughs> many, many, many of the female baggage, a lot of the female baggage you see is food issues, though. Now, men, many of the men, I mean the overwhelming percentage of men who are attracted to anabolic steroids, they're here for the wrong reasons. Yeah. They have body dysmorphia issues, they have self-esteem issues, they have a thousand and one problems. And these underlying issues drive the overuse of these things. Like it's the old story of like everyone wants to be financially successful, but every now and again, you come across some exceptional individual that creates staggering wealth. And and I'm not, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, but when you start to dig, you realize something's driving that individual. Yeah. They're very often driven by something different, yeah? Mm -hmm. So they're trying to prove something to somebody or, you know, they usually very balanced, healthy individuals stay in the middle ground of society. And when we push out to the extremes of society and the extremes of our tribal behaviors, you very often come across people that are coming to the table, not as balanced individuals, but they're coming with issues. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Men, I'm, I'm, I'm directing this to men. And so very often the... Abuse of steroids is something that is driven not by you mean a balanced mind, but an imbalanced mind. I look in the mirror, I don't see myself as a 220-pound bodybuilder. I need more, 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 more. 
I can't take a break because the guy that that, that that trains across in the gym, he looks like he's making progress. I know I've been doing it for nine months. I know I should be taking a break. I know I should be allowing my organs to recover from the stress I applied on, but I'm going to keep applying these stresses because I'm comparing myself to, to another individual. I, want, I need to beat him. Does do that make sense? steroids themselves, do they have some sort of additional effect on mental health? Do they, are they psychoactive? Do they amplify uh, personality? <clears throat> what sort of mental health effects do steroids have? On it's, ext- it's, ex- it's extremely controversial, but what I would argue is the three areas that we need to concern ourselves today with are our kidneys, our heart, and our brain. We used to focus on things like liver health and acne and gynecomastia. These things, are not, I don't want to dismiss them, but they're so easy to fix that it's it's laughable. Do this and this, it's gone. And let's move on to the serious conversation, kidneys, heart, and the brain. And I would argue that the, the changes, so, so balancing out the hormonal profile has the potential to improve someone's mental balance. If you take someone who's very depressed, and give them a physiological dose of testosterone, very often that outcome is a positive outcome. Yeah? But there's an, what we call an inverted J-curve attached to you. So, so some provides beneficial outcome. But as you continue to raise the dose more and more and more, you go up through the other side of the curve, if that makes sense. Yeah? So there's a point where you would say, for example, when we talk about brain health, we would consider testosterone to be neuroprotective at moderate dosages. Mm. Walking around in a hypogonadal state is not good for your brain, right? It's not good for depression. There's a thousand things one we're talking about. A man walking around with heavily suppressed testosterone levels really should try to bring that back to middle, middle ground, yeah? But if you keep going, there's deleterious consequence here. There's no question of that whatsoever. And this is part of my argument about modulating the 13 metabolic pathways moderately rather than pressing too hard on the androgen receptor because that is the pathway through which we cause the greatest damage. This is the great irony when people historically have said, you don't need growth hormone, you're not a professional. You don't need insulin, you're not a professional. I'm saying, but you have to understand that by comparison to anabolic steroids, growth hormone is relatively benign. You can make an argument about the deleterious effects of growth hormone. I have no problem with that. But I would much rather see someone take a little bit of androgens and a little bit of growth hormone and a little bit of insulin, one plus one plus one, for a equals plus five outcome than not using growth hormone and not using insulin and only using anabolic steroids to try and chase the same level of outcome. It's interesting. It's like where where is natural, right? Like we're in a time where we're seeing men are a little bit more feminine than they used to be. And, and there's a, a lot of crossover and a lot of different things. So at what baseline now, like the baseline is, is set by image. Is it Instagram? Is it Prince, you know, Chris Bumstead and classic physique? Is it, hmm. you know, the, what the doctor's testosterone normal level parameters are when you go get your blood work done? Like, and then that's different from male to female. And then this ties back into the image identity, I guess you could say crisis that we're kind of living right now, where we're trying to s- siphon through all the information while position ourselves as a, as a species amongst each other while identifying and, and coexisting. So like, at, mm. at what point is healthy? You know what I mean? Like you go to the gym, your testosterone, you, you eat better, you stay natural, you go to the gym, you stay consistent for a couple of years, nine out of 10 times, that's going to help everything move in a better direction for mm. a natural state. 
But is there a better natural state? Is there a higher mm. natural state? You know, and, and I think that's what you're saying. It's not as black and white as uh, I get drunk. Well, that fu- that fucks me up. Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I take TRT. So I'm going to be angry as hell. Like it's it's so many different so many different moving conversations all at the same time. Agreed. And this is where I managed to offend everyone. So so far, I have offended. You know, X percentage of our community. Now, 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 I'm going to offend the the medical practice, right? Okay, here's it. a classic one. So, who determined that testosterone replacement therapy? The guidelines should be 500 milligrams a week. Who, who who made that up? Right? Literally, why can we not go out and do a survey of the elite naturals of this world? And we have this information. I'm not saying speculative. We we know what this is, right? And ascertain well. These healthy young men, the most elite among us, walk around with testosterone levels approaching, you know, twelve hundred to thirteen hundred nanograms per deciliter. Right? That's I, bear with me the best. That's two and a half times, you know, what TRT is. Why can that not be the benchmark? You're in, and and I would argue then this becomes an interesting conversation because what I call TRT and what my doctor calls TRT is different. What I call TRT is this: I want to know what the elite natural of this world, their endocrine profile looks like, and I want that. I don't care about you know what average Joe has and, and the endocrine society's benchmark for success as a TRT outcome is very low. That's a long way down the list here, okay? And you might improve quality of life by this margin, but who, who said you cannot have, if you experience TA, sorry, testosterone production levels during puberty of, say, 1,300 nanograms per deciliter, what is the argument for artificially maintaining that through a larger portion of your life? Where it normally drops away, yeah? why can we not maintain the highest peak that we realize as, as, as natural individuals? Why can we not retain our best sense of self through life? Now, this is the argument. When you have the argument, it's very difficult to say why not. Like it's hard. There is, it's fair enough to say, well, maybe testosterone levels decline because there's a reason they need to decline, but that's highly speculative. That's not evidence-based. We don't have any evidence that says testosterone falls away to protect us from these deleterious outcomes. So again, this is the challenge with these types of conversations. I offend everybody. I offend the medical <laughs> community. I offend the, the endocrinologist society. I offend the bros. I offend everybody. I would argue this, and that it's really simple, that the argument to what you said is very simple. If you follow the black model, what you would do is you would first look at what God gave you or whatever your beliefs are. What is your endocrine profile today? What does it look like? Right. And how does that stack up against the best of us? Right. Mm. And then the argument is why are you not entitled to that? It's a strong word, but why are you not entitled to artificially modulate yourself to at least to those levels? And then what I would argue is once you get to those levels, that's enough for 95% of us. So the application of approved for human use drugs, therapeutic drugs, designed to elicit outcomes along these metabolic pathways to the absolute limits of what is plausible naturally, right, would be a model that, in my opinion, that that is our future, Mm. whether people understand or not. Now, whether we self-administer, we're in such early days in this regard, whether we self-administer that outcome or whether that becomes a societal norm, I'm going to argue that's where we're heading. 
we're going to figure out both male and female should, if it's something, you know, if it's something that's going to make us live longer, stay stronger and grow healthier as a species as a whole. I mean, I try to, I try to keep up with my wife at the gym. She's been doing it for 20 years. I'm only three years solid in, you know, like at the end of the day, she's rowing 20 pounds less than me. There's no ego there. I'm learning. I mean, she's Mm. a savage, you know, at the end of the day, she's got time under her belt. She's strong and she could do things that most women that I've met can't even do. And she's been natural. So to to think that ultimately she's she's extending her life to a a greater degree, her heart health, her internal health, her mental health. She's stronger with a lean mass that she's holding, Uh, you know, her mental health and capacity. She sleeps better. Everything's just better all the way around. I mean, to me, that's inspiring. It makes me work harder. It doesn't matter, male or female. You you know, like. It makes me sound pretty good. I'll keep them around. Yeah, I'm working here. I'm working here. No, but really, it's it's, it's great. It's very interesting to to hear. At, At what point now are we changing this gene experience and moving it in a direction where we can ultimately modulate it towards an even greater species, which is what the conversation is you're having right now, which is yeah, and and this is why I use terms like it's 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 meant to be gender neutral, supernatural man. That's that, that's something different to the abuse of PEDs. Yeah, mm. we're we're creating this artificially constructed endocrine model that nobody was ever born with, but it's plausible that someone could have it. Let's create that, and I would argue place yourself there how is that any different to cosmetic surgery realistically Mm -hmm. how is that any different to the modulation of estrogen and progesterone for you know what can only really be described as choice outcomes with birth control that's a choice that's a, a choice women are entitled to but it's a choice nonetheless yeah so the challenge is there's these conversations but we as a bodybuilding community are so far disconnected from these conversations. Like this is what should be happening. This is a conversation come over here. And these are the conversations that I try to have with my community within masterclass, but that's not the conversations that are happening within our tribe. Within our tribe, we we have things to say. If I, if I cover things, Oh my God, we can't talk about the transgender community. Oh my God, we can't talk about PCOS. I don't suffer from PCOS. How is that relevant to me? You know what I mean? You know, w- women during pregnancy, what happens to their hormonal profile? It should be that should should be a very interesting subject. Like, what actually? What do we actually see? You know, and even things like I'm a big advocate of men running their estrogen levels as high as they can tolerate them. Estrogen is a hypertrophic pathway in its own right. It's cardiac protective. It's cognitive protective. It's renal protective. It's very, very difficult to describe what the deleterious consequence of running high estrogen are. No one can give me like a side effect. There is no side effect that people can describe. Very often people will say it's things like water retention, but estrogen doesn't cause water retention. That's the job of the renin-angiotensin aldosterone system. So in other words, if I'm advocating that, what I'm saying is, well, where's the limit? There must be a limit somewhere. We don't just, it's not just the sky's the limit. I would argue, well, Let's use the limits set by the endocrine society for for men going the other way. For men that want to identify as women, they give them this much estrogen, right? There's no deleterious consequence to their prostate. There's no deleterious consequence to their heart. So if endocrinologists are prepared to give men this much estrogen that want to identify as women and have no concern about the consequence of that behavior, and I look at estrogen as being, you know, you know, hypertrophic pathway, good for your heart, good for your brain, good for your thing. Why would I not set my estrogen levels higher than male physiology and leverage those benefits? 
I'm going to set them as high as the endocrine society would give me if I wanted to identify women. You have to understand how controversial that is. That is like, oh my God, nobody, nobody has ever spoken in those terms before. And you're upsetting everybody, the medical community, the people that say your estrogen needs to be contained, the people that think that estrogen is a female hormone. This is a an outrageous statement. The people that blame estrogen for everything understand. You have to understand for 60 years, estrogen was the enemy. Yeah. Estrogen was blamed for all sorts of things that estrogen didn't actually do. The same as with women. You know, women historically haven't even identified testosterone as a female hormone. Of course, it's a female hormone. You know, there are even people that would argue women don't need testosterone, they need estrogen progesterone. Like, I just don't agree. There's no quality evidence to support that argument. So the, the, the drain we're circling around here, guys, is it doesn't matter who you talk to, whether you're talking to an endocrinologist, when you're talking to a general practitioner, whether you're talking to a, a someone in the gym using, when you're talking to a coach. I am frustrated by the quality of conversations and the quality of debate that goes along. And I'm all open to debate. I want people to step up and, and have the argument, why can't we do this? Why can't we set testosterone levels at 1,300 nanograms per deciliter? Why not? Please, the world's experts in androgen research step up and tell us why that's not practical. Today, we're simply told, don't do it. You know, 500 is the, is the rule. You know, you're going to have to explain to me why I can't go back to the levels I enjoyed you know, as a young, healthy man. Why can't I have the levels that we see in elite natural athletes? What, what is well, the reason? Of, well, speaking of, let's bring up the TRT subject real quick and talk about natural sure. bodybuilding. I know you talked about how I think within two weeks of basically you're, you're in a weight loss process. Wasn't it the natural bodybuilder, the level of testosterone tanked like 63%? Was it two weeks? <laughs> I wouldn't say two weeks, but anyone that has any experience in natural bodybuilding knows that as you approach stage body composition, yeah, your entire endocrine profile becomes a shit show. Like it's it's literally horrible. So testosterone tanks, your growth hormone tanks, cortisol spikes, thyroid hormone tanks, pretty much every hormone that is is that we're talking about modulated here tanks. And as I said, we're leaning back to that. So. Those are the rules of, of natural bodybuilding. Now, the reason that they ban testosterone replacement therapy from natural bodybuilding is you have to appreciate having that up your sleeve is an unfair advantage to someone. Yeah. So you have two athletes on the stage. One has normal testosterone levels because he's artificially modulating them. I should say normal testosterone, normal DHT, and normal estrogen because they all matter. Yeah. And then the next guy next to him, his, his hormonal profile is in the toilet. Now, what I would argue is, one, that is without question an unfair advantage by artificially modulating them. But it's, I mean, plausibly safer. It's, it's plausibly better for you because it causes less stress. Yeah. It's very hard to argue that, you know, whether you're a male or whether you're a female, tanking your body composition to climb on stage is a healthy pursuit. And then lifting up, even simple things like if you if you understand that one of the ways that the body modulates its metabolic rate, one of, is through the modulation of the thyroid hormones, T4 and T3. These decline under those conditions. So just the very virtue of you know putting these drugs back into the system at normal levels, not exceeding actual production levels, just normal, 
offsets that metabolic adaption to some degree. You could argue for that as being a healthier way to diet for competitions. But I think that's a great explanation, and that's for the audience to understand why is TRT banned in natural bodybuilding. Yeah. There's that's such a great explanation, and I'm hoping that you can also touch on briefly uh, going back to female virilization and female drug protocols. And there's a, a compound called Anavar, and if you're listening and you've been a bodybuilder for a while, you probably have heard it at least once, or maybe your coach has recommended it to you. But it seems to be like the go-to compound for female. Uh, bodybuilding who are going into the enhanced route. It's like the first thing that people go to. Can you explain why? And can you also explain why you recommend it, that it should be the last thing that's recommended mm. to women? Right. So, so th this is going to be a, a five minute, uh, this could be five minutes here, a little attitude <laughs> here. Yeah. Sorry. So the first, th first thing we need to understand is this, the real threat to women is not the application of androgens in an acute time frame. It's the duration of exposure. Yeah. So when you look at the historical clinical application of anabolic steroids to women for therapeutic benefits, some of the doses that you see in the literature are eye-watering. They're like, how, how much? They gave them how much? Like, wow, right? But you have to understand, but the premise here is, so here's a woman who is exper experiencing a disease state that needs this treatment methodology, and we expose her to this treatment methodology. And then when that treatment is passed, she never sees that drug again in her life. It's an acute one-time application. It's a one-time deal. Yeah. So the application of those drugs is vastly different from someone that's taking them recreationally and taking them and taking them and taking them and taking them and taking them. The greatest risk to women in, in enhancement practice today is not the amount of androgens she's taking or the choice of female-friendly androgens she's taking. It's the duration of exposure over her career. Okay. So the best way I can describe that is. We talked about the transgender community before. We know that if you give a woman 50 milligrams of testosterone, she doesn't transform into the male identity in two weeks. It takes time. Gradually, this happens. Yeah, It's very similar to the process that young men go through when they experience puberty. They don't wake up one day and they look like this. It's androgens elevate, and gradually over time, we start to see these physiological changes occur. Yeah, And with women... The big change that we need to worry about, there's three real core components, three real core questions we need to ask here. If we set aside the understanding that it's really not about organ health, yes, you can absolutely, without question, uh, cause drug-induced uh, organ injury, no question. But at the doses that are actually required for female physique competition, it's not a discussion about organ health. It's really a discussion about virilization. Then you really need to understand the three core areas. One is uh, unwanted hair growth. One is changes to sexual anatomy. And two is changes to the vocal architecture. These are the, these are the three things that most women identify with. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that list to make sure we, we cover those? I think that's no? great. That's a great start because I'd okay, like to cool. talk about specific so, divisions in bodybuilding, like wellness that you're right. seeing extreme protocols. I'd like to talk about well, that. You can, you can add size as well. I mean, when you look at bo female bodybuilding today versus... 10 or 20 years ago, it's, it's doubled in size, right? So. Yeah. I, I, I meant so much in terms of deleterious effect that a lot of people would consider it to be a desired outcome. They, they, that's the, they're chasing that. What they want to avoid is unwanted hair growth. And you know, facial changes. structure change. Yeah. Facial Fe structure. Fecal. Yeah. Uh, understood. So, so what I would say is when we put those in order of consequence, and, and this is a little embarrassing, I apologize, but most women who experience some change in sexual architecture it's not unwelcomed. 
they they see a, a, like an an increase in in the size of sexual anatomy, but it's not like it becomes a, a, a microphallus. It's you know a twenty five percent increase in the size of your clitoris. Very very rarely do women complain about this. I talk to women all the time. They're just going like, my husband and I are very happy. Thank you very much. Let's move on to the next thing. It's a, it's a non issue. Interesting. It's taboo to talk about it, but most women are not worried about it. Yeah. You see the outliers, and typically it's men to point to this. Men, men see these like extreme examples, like at the far end of the spectrum. I'm not saying they don't exist, but it's not a typical response. Yeah. And, and, and they get concerned about that. And I understand that, but we validate that by saying, look, we really need to address the body of the audience. And then that one outlier over there would deal as a separate conversation. It can happen. That's an extreme outcome, but that is abuse, outright abuse. And so then we end up with the discussion about unwanted hair growth. To be honest with you, most women are okay with that, especially as they get a little bit older, because they're going, look, I have, I'm surrounded by dozens of friends that are going through the same thing at this point in their life where they're seeing more unwanted hair growth and they don't use androgens. And the point I'm making is not to try to dismiss this conversation about unwanted hair growth, but by the time you wax your arms and your legs and you know, da 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 da, you're in, it's, it's not the same conversation that people think it is. The real conversation here is changes to the vocal architecture. This is the is the is the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room, and the main the reason behind that in the face. That's, that's fair. So the changes to the vocal architecture are very interesting because it's the very first change we see. Yeah. So when you look at the process, you start to notice a change in virilization and the problem in in vocal architecture. And the problem is once you see that change, it never goes back. It's a permanent thing. Once you take a non-virilized voice box and you virilize it and you and you change the architecture, it cannot go back. Yeah. And and we we know this because all the evidence we have from the transgender community, the people that were basically born as male identity and wish to be identified as female, it doesn't matter what they do beyond you know vocal coaching. There's really there's surgery, but there's not really a solution that set, makes the male voice box sound female. But the interesting thing here is prepubescent men and women have effectively the same vocal architecture. It's the application of androgens that cause those changes. Okay. But the androgens that cause those changes don't happen in a week. They don't happen in two weeks. It's the it's a duration of relatively low elevation of androgens, okay, natural male range kind of thing over a block of time. And so the point I'm leading to here is this. If you're a woman, what I'm suggesting is if you're going to be in this game for one year, it really doesn't matter what you do, okay? The problem is, but if you're going to hang around for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, you better have a plan for the application of androgens. And the application of androgens cannot be the first line of action. You cannot put Anovar or any other anabolic steroid on the table as the first line of action. Why? Because you have 20 years ahead of you. The logical, rational model says, right, it's not that we're not going to use Anovar. It's not that we're not going to use another anabolic steroid, but we need to do everything we can to make as much progress towards our goals as we can by using drugs that are demonstrated not to cause these outcomes in women. Now, that doesn't mean they might not have problems of their own. I'll give you a simple example. No one could argue that growth hormone doesn't have a list of problems that we can discuss. Yeah. But virilization is not one of them. 
Okay. So you could give a woman a unit of growth hormone pretty much every day for the rest of her life. And we're not too concerned about like, you're going to have to describe the problem to me, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you could use a drug like clambuterol or thyroid hormone or another fat burning agent. And we could talk about the problems associated with it, but virilization is not attached to that discussion. Virilization only attaches to the conversation about the application of androgens. And so if you think about it logically, if we have a piece of paper and we write down a list of all the drugs that we might plausibly use, and androgens are the ones that scare us the most as a woman because we're worried about what they might do to our vocal architecture, we would never put that on the table as first line of action. It just makes no sense whatsoever. We would do everything we possibly could before we introduce that class of compounds. Now, you don't need to know anything about the clinical literature to go, no, but that just makes a lot of sense. But ironically, because anabolic steroids are so easy to access, they're so inexpensive, and they're so easy to administer in the form of like Anavar, ease makes it the first action. Take 10 milligrams once a day, take it for this many weeks, stop using it. You know so in other words, we're making decisions about what we should be doing for a 20-year career, not based on what is the right rational, logical model to follow, but how easy it is to execute. How much um, dosage comparative to the 50 milligrams of testosterone you said is a week is what is given to a female who wants to become a man, transgender. What is the equivalent of Anavar in dose? It's very hard to give you a hard number, but I'll, I'll give you a rough one. So, so if you understand that 50 milligrams a week is the beginning journey for transgender therapy for women, 50 milligrams of testosterone, yeah? Many women start the journey in this, in this scope at 10 milligrams of Anavar a day. It's a very common starting point, yeah? But that tends to escalate over time and they end up on 15 milligrams or 20 milligrams. So you understand there's 140 milligrams of Anavar a week versus 50 milligrams of testosterone a week. Now, Anyone that's in this space would know that Anavar is not as androgenic as testosterone. That is fair, right? So there's an allowance here that says, okay, so we get to use more Anavar before we have an equivalent milligram consequence of testosterone. Does that make sense? Yeah. But what I would argue is, is, hang on a sec, 150, 40 milligrams, like we're not talking about 100 to 1 anabolic ratio here. If we were to argue that by modifying the testosterone molecule, the scientists were able to take 90% of the virilization outcome away from, you know, Anavar or something like that drug. I think that's probably about right. Probably about right. You know, like it's a 10 to one thing. Yeah. So in other words, so 50 milligrams of testosterone is five milligrams of Anavar. Yeah. Okay. But then what happens is they, they start to, people start to use more and more and more and more of the drugs and they use them for longer and longer and longer. And this is what I said. If I'm very serious when I say, if a woman was going to compete for one year and she was going to expose herself even to 20 milligrams of Anavar for 12 weeks leading up to a competition and then retire and walk away, I'm not, I'm not in any way really concerned about this. We have plenty of clinical literature that would support that dosing protocol for that kind of duration with minimum consequence of effect, but not 20 years of that behavior, not and, and, and over and over and over and over and over again. So again, we need to shift the conversation away from not just how much you're taking or the drug that you'll take for us, but what is going to be your plan for the next 20 years? 
Yeah. So the difference here between women is we need to move the conversation into the vector of time, duration of exposure. There's very good evidence, and we're talking about the drug Winstrong now, okay, that you can create virilization in women on as little as four milligrams of Winstrong a day if you give it to her long enough. Okay. So today we live in a, in, in a world that people talk about two things. This class of drug is okay for women. That class of drug is not. I would completely disagree with that. For example, I think that testosterone replacement therapy for women is a very valid you know, therapeutic practice. The idea that women don't take testosterone, I disagree with. Yeah, I do agree it's the doses, the poison conversation, how much we're talking about here. But the idea that there's classes of drugs that women do use and don't use, I don't agree with. And then what we need to do is understand that it's not just about what drug we're using and how much we're using it, but what is going to be the strategy for the next X number of years moving forward? And the, and the, and the, the answer is I have a model that suits this, suits this argument very well. It simply works like this. You take a piece of paper, you write down every list, every drug that you're able to access and you're comfortable using. Now, that's going to be different for everybody in the world. Some people will be happy using drugs like insulin. Some of the, the mere virtue of mentioning it is enough to put them off. And that's completely fair. I, I'm empathetic to that. But we start off with this list of drugs. On that list of drugs will be the line item anabolic steroids for women. Okay, And all I'm saying is we move that line item discussion to the very last thing we do. So we do as much as we can with everything we can with all of the different classes of compounds that we can that don't induce virilization, and we leave anabolic steroids to the last. So the application of anabolic steroids for, say, six weeks a year, twice a year, is 12 weeks of exposure. My question to you is, well, what are you going to do for the rest of the year, if that makes sense? And what happens is women start off very often with that mindset, six weeks is fine, and then they do two blocks of it, and that's 12 weeks. But then how do you walk away from not having a growth promotion agent on the table? And so the six weeks becomes 12 weeks. The 12 weeks becomes 18 weeks. The 18 weeks becomes 24 weeks. And very often you find women that they're having 24 to 30 weeks of exposure to androgens a year, really because they just don't understand that there are different classes of compounds, and some of these compounds cause virilization outcomes, and some do not. So. If we start with all of the drugs, not saying they're not problematic, but all of the drugs that cannot cause virilization, and we deal with the problems, and then we keep the, the class of anabolic steroids to last, and we put it in and we take it out and put it in strategically, you can have a lifetime of exposure without the specter of virilization leaning over your shoulder. It's very, very, very simple. But it's interesting because there's the new class, the wellness class, which is gaining a tremendous amount of attention and People are just absolutely fascinated with this class, and it is an amazing class. So the wellness division is a is more of an asymmetrical shape where the legs, the glutes, the quads, everything is extremely jacked, calves, everything lower body. But the upper body is more in line with a bikini competitor, maybe not. So, so it's not proportioned. It's not symmetrical. But this sure. class itself is just because the, the visual uh, legs and the glutes are just, are just so amazing. They're shocking to people. It's new. This division is really gaining a significant amount of momentum. And you did a post recently that showed protocols that are that you're you're seeing women who are in this wellness division being given and you're just absolutely mind blown. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you're seeing this and what you're seeing and how how damaging long term or even short term the doses that are given to these women 
you can share a little uh, bit about that. I, I, I'm, I'm going to expose my own weaknesses as a human being. We all, we all suffer bias. We all suffer filters. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. My own is this. I, I'm quite serious when I say, in my opinion, the knowledge of application of PED drugs varies around the world. Yeah. I live in Thailand, in Asia. The knowledge here is horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. And I would argue one of the reasons that you're, you're, you're commenting on that is whether it's true or not, it is my bias that the, the South Americans are driving that force. And I don't think their knowledge is very good. So you're seeing these outcomes without understanding what they're really doing. Now, <clears throat> is that fair? I don't know. I'm open to, if someone wants to stand up and defend the knowledge of the coaches in South America about what they're doing, that's fine. I, that is just my opinion. That's all it is. I don't have any evidence to support that, but it is my opinion. When you go to India, when you go to Southeast Asia, when you go to South America, when you go to Africa, they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing. You know, so whether that's true, whether that's not, are where people can people can make their own judgment calls, but I would argue that class is being driven out of South America. But the levels that you're seeing, can you give an like an example? We were talking about um, Anavar versus testosterone versus um, transgender community, and some of the compounds that at Women Wellness Division, the amounts that you're seeing. Yeah, I, I, maybe that because I, I I did get a couple of comments on that post. I think people might have misunderstood what I'm saying there. I think it's fair to say, and this applies to men and, and women equally, yeah, that from the beginning of time, since we started using this thing, there has been a, a range of approaches to the application of drugs that has ranged from mild to, wow, you're going to die. Yeah. That's probably fair. Yeah. I made a post that was a case study that was reported out of South America for a bikini competitor and a wellness competitor that quoted doses, but you have to understand that was what we call N equals one, an individual competitor, okay? So that doesn't mean when you look at the stage and that particular girl that was in that biochemical bio, bio, bio profile was you know standing in the center of the stage that the woman to her left was doing exactly what she was doing, nor the woman to her right. It was simply pointing to the fact that these practices are, do exist within those classes. And I would argue, just as for men, there's a spectrum of abuse that ranges from mo moderate use for someone like myself to like, wow. The interesting thing, though, and, and, and this is, I, I, I think this is very easy to demonstrate, but you can only demonstrate it through observation, is professional athletes do not abuse drugs as much as amateurs do. Professional athletes tend to have two things on their side. One is genetics, Right. And two is sometimes a better a better head for the future, yeah. A lot of the guys that and girls that are abusing the drugs the most don't have the genetics, and they haven't broken through yet, so they're not surrounded by other people's behavior so much. And you know, there are coaches out there that you know, I'm I'm the I'm the guy that can get you your pro card. You mean a lot of the time, what that means when you think about that, if you if you're a good coach and you know what you're doing, and someone's saying I can get you your pro card. I mean, let's be honest with you. What that means is more drugs because the, the fundamental difference between a high quality nutrition program from one coach to the next, the amount of variables that you can modulate, right? I'm not saying they don't do anything, but they're not. Wow. It's like you're, you're, you're adjusting the dials gently in and, and, and skilled set of hands controlling training programming and, and nutritional programming 
I'm not saying it doesn't add value, but how do you claim to get someone a pro card? Like it's a very interesting claim, right? To me, that simply means if I took all of my clients and, and doubled their dosages, we would win more trophies. That's just my opinion. Again, now that can upset people. I, I don't really care because you have to say, what does that mean when someone says, I'm I, I'm the guy that gets people pro cards? What, what do you mean by that? You have genetics that doesn't change as they move coaches. You know, training principles and nutritional principles and supplementation principles are for all intents purposes within a ballpark to each other. The one great variable that is on the table that people are talking about has to be the drugs. And again, I see protocols from a great many people that on one level they'll they'll go onto a podcast and they'll talk about the need to you know be moderate, and then I'll see the protocols that they're giving their clients, and they cannot be described as moderate. So there is, a, you know, there there is a there is an interesting story, an interesting thread to, for people to pull on there. But I would argue this: the the spectrum of behaviours that we see mass, massively varies. And very typically, the worst abuse that we see are people at the upper ebb levels of uh, amateur breakthrough. They're, they're desperately wanting to break through and get their, get their pro card. Typically, that's the group of people that I see the greatest abuse in. They have the least amount of knowledge about what they're doing, and they're using typically the greatest dosages. And, and the post you're referring to is there was a, a, a bikini wellness competitor taking 450 milligrams a week of androgens. Now, just as a side note to that, let me explain this. You have to understand, in the 1970s, they gave 1,200 milligrams a week of prima bolin to women, right? Nothing to do with bodybuilding, therapeutical practice. When women had uh, estrogen-mediated breast cancer, the treatment methodology was 300 milligrams a week of Masteron. So this is, becomes the interesting, you know, the, the washing machine that we get into saying, well, so here's a wellness competitor taking 450 milligrams of androgens. Conversation one. Here's historical clinical practice where they gave women for you know estrogen-mediated breast cancer purposes 1,200 milligrams of, of, of prima bolin. Yeah. It's an interesting washover effect. Now, what I would argue is this is the point about time. If that bikini competitor wanted to take 450 milligrams of androgens for eight weeks and retire you could probably defend her behaviors based on what we have in clinical evidence, but not again and again and again and again, because the difference is in the clinical studies, they apply it and remove the stimulus and it's gone. It's, it's interesting that the way you cross over wellness, again, identity, right? You're saying, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying that from South American and African to Asia and whatnot, it's, it's an image that they're trying to achieve. And these trainers or coaches are, they're pushing a certain agenda potentially is what you're saying, well, right? Well, to, to achieve this particular look, right? Is that what you're going for? Yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is, and, and I'm not, I want to be very careful. I don't want to connect the competitors on the stage to what we see in, in society. I'm trying, mm -hmm. to, I'm trying to keep it. But it's fair to say there are, there's been an explosion of cosmetic procedures in that part of the world where basically they, they stick fillers in your butt to make your butt stick out. 100%. I don't agree with the behavior. I think it's an extremist behavior, but it's a cultural desire in that part of the world to have that physical appearance. Now, whether they achieve it through training and, and, and modulation of you know, uh, uh, growth-promoting drugs or whether cosmetic surgery, or let's be honest, both you know, at the same time, it's an extremist behavior and I don't necessarily think it's sustainable. Some of it would, I would say would 
potentially be genetic, right? I mean, you see, correct, agreed. Not to be offensive to anybody, but you do see naturally black women with with bigger asses and Hispanic agreed. women with bigger asses. Like again, not to be offensive to anybody listening, but that's just kind of the way it is genetically. You see that, and that the wellness division is kind of leaned into a little bit more, trying to to redefine or define that particular image as as a species. You know, it's it's interesting to think about. Um, as I, I'm listening, you put it all together, how short-term versus long-term use, we've talked about safety protocols, you know, in long-term life goals, we've talked about whether or not you're using it for, for sports specific, um, you know, enhancement or bodybuilding as a sport specific, um, in mindset and addiction all the way around. At what point could we use any of these pathways and, you know, use them to create the effect needed to achieve positive results, minimizing the negative outcomes of whatever we're implying, whatever substance we're using. At what point can we stop using them and keep these results like that bone density, that lean mass? Or is is there a point of no return? Are we going to age ourselves faster and it's not good? Or are those last 10 or 20 years now better, as you would say, I feel like young again, and it was worth it because what are really the golden years all about if I'm in a wheelchair? So like, is, where's that line? Is it kind of grade still? What, what do you see that as? It's interesting you raise that because I would argue that legitimate need in, elevates with age. Yeah, it's fair to say that many of these hormonal pathways that I'm advocating that we modulate decline with age. This is you know, very, very clearly held in evidence. So you could very easily argue that many of my, and it's, it's true, many of my models are premised on what is happening in sarcopenia, which is the age-related muscle wasting. Yeah. So we have an aging population. You understand I'm in my mid-50s. I'm interested in this conversation. I'm interested in age-related cognitive decline. I'm interested in physical decline. Many of the, the, the principles have direct parallels to what's happening in sarcopenia. They're not saying, okay, so as we get older, we're going to introduce testosterone, the conversation's over. That's not the research paradigm. The research paradigm is a multifaceted approach to a multifaceted problem. We have a, a, an issue with insulin sensitivity. What, what are we going to do about that? We have an, uh, an issue with you know, lipid skewing, cholesterol profiles. What are we going to do about that? And so... The parallels between what I'm proposing as supernatural man, like a lot of the inspiration, a lot of the motivation for what that looks like is actually drawn from what I believe the future of aging looks like. The conversation becomes one of you have to be very careful between where you draw these compounds down from. I am very passionate. We should only be using approved for human use drugs, not abandoned research chemicals. It's fair to say in the next 20 years, we're going to see new drugs come onto the market that fill needs that you know either they'll do the job better than the, what we have today, or they will do things that we cannot do today. That's fair. But ultimately, what it comes down to is managing the risk and the reward. I think describing the reward is relatively simple. It's pretty straightforward. As you get older and you see age-related cognitive and age-related hormonal decline, can we offset that through behaviors like nutrition and training and pharmacology? I think the answer is really easy. It's yes, that's the goal here. Yeah, the the devil is in the detail. And what I would argue with all of these conversations is I go back to what I was saying before about testosterone, but there's an inverted J curve here. In other words, adding a little bit more of thyroid hormone is potentially beneficial. But if you keep adding it and adding it and adding it, 
eventually you would expect to see a deleterious consequence in the case of thyroid hormone T3, that might be a catabolic effect on tissue. So more makes us more hypertrophic, you know, more anabolic. But if you keep going, you cross the threshold and become catabolic. And I think that framework applies to everything. This is a conversation not about the identification and modulation of these pathways. I think that's really easy to defend. Yeah, Whether it's an age-related discussion, whether it's a trying to make you know nat, quote unquote natural bodybuilding more healthy, more sustainable, whether it's trying to you know, pull the guys over here at the extreme end down, down, down more into the middle of the curve. It's really easy to defend that. The conversation really is over. And this is why I say sometimes my thing, if you're still arguing that you should be taking anabolic steroids and starting at so many milligrams a week, and then you increase the dose until you reach a toxic level, and then move on to the next class of drugs, you, you, you've been left behind. We've, we've moved forward from that. Now the conversation is right. So these are the metabolic pathways. These are the drugs that we have. Which ones are we going to choose and how much are we going to use and what methodologies we're going to place to ensure that we're doing this in a sustainable manner? It's so interesting too, when you're talking about, you know, substances and, and whatnot, and we're in, in the same debate, we're having debates about food. I mean, there's yeah. so many different models right now. I mean, you, you can attest to this too. I mean, I've done just about everything. Well, I think there's, there's one challenge that I think, I, I think that I'd like to bring up here and is to talk about the legality of it, of mm. all of this, because. Can I, can I just answer the food questions? Well, Sorry, can I can I just answer that third question first, and then we'll do that. Yeah. Sorry. Well, the, le- you said the legality it, is more like making sure you get the right compounds. So no, no, no. I understand that, but okay. but about the about the you you said that the argument about the food about the keto, the carnivore, the thing, it, grains, no ab- grains, fats, no fats, good fats, it, bad fats, cholesterol, all that. I mean, it's just a whole nother conversation. Right. It's I mean, absolutely the same conversation, though. So here's the thing: is. if you think about it, right? So here's the thing: the thing that drives most people towards a diet model, right, is how easy it is. It's not whether it's the right one. It's not whether it's the wrong one. It's not whether you're going to get the best outcome. It's how easy it is. I'll give you a simple example. People that don't like eating vegetables and don't like eating fruit are drawn to carnivore. It's got nothing to do for the most part for who's attracted to carnivore, whether carnivore has merits or not. Those people are attracted to that model. Now, if you, if you understand it, People that write diet models understand that you were not going to sell 100,000 copies of a book called The Balanced Diet in 2022, <laughs> right? You, you have Mike to T. offer Nelson, something. Mike Nelson, he's trying. Flex <laughs> diet certified. Get certified. You rock, Mike. There you go. So, so, so you understand the premise here, and that is many of these successful models are actually designed the outset to appeal to a particular niche and easy that that appeals to me because it aligns to my pre-existing biases or beliefs or whatever like that yeah a lot of a lot of the people that are interested in what i have to do tend to be older guys you know they're you know in their 40s and their 50s and looking at that through the lens of you know what a what someone who's 20 years old is not listed about the the food model premise and that is what actually drives much of the miscommunication and misunderstanding here is the motivations of the audiences that are attracted to the various models unashamedly most people that are interested in my materials 
are already massively aware of the poor quality of educational content available. I don't need to convince them of that. They know that. They're, they're going, oh, my God, thank God, finally someone is coming along and presenting an evidence-based argument, and they're all over what I'm saying. The great masses, though, aren't even yet aware that there's a problem. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. For everyone listening, he was breaking it up a little bit, but I believe we got it all. Essentially, what he's saying is that diets are fads and food is fuel, and you have to understand the human species as a whole biologically, which takes a lifetime, and we still have no idea. We're still learning all the time. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like, we're in this conversation on the bleeding edge right now, and he's a part of that. He's a part of that conversation in many different Agreed. facets. So, Agreed. So we're, talk, we're talking about the legalities. I cut you off. I thought that was important to say that. So you're, you were saying you're, you're concerned about the, the legal implications of this. So maybe it's I can just make- twofold. Yeah, it's twofold. Yep. So the question really is, number one, we have this knowledge that you've just shared with us about uh, certain compounds or, or just shouldn't be given to women in the first place, but they often are. And then mm -hmm. of the ones that are anabolics, there are levels of androgen response. And the ones that have more favorable are something like Anavar and ones that aren't, you can probably share what those compounds are, but you don't know what you're getting in the mail. Unless you're I completely agree. testing it, you don't know. So there is that from the legality, it's like, well, how are people, it's just so, it's just like some states, it's a felony to even have the products in your, in your hand. And now so, we're ordering so, this stuff and how, and you can't even be sure because it's black market that it's what you're getting. So it's kind of like a twofold question. How are, how is it so rampantly used that, and how easily accessible and then at the same time, how can you be so sure that what you're getting is what you think you're getting and you're hoping to not be viralized? And then next thing you know. Yeah. You know, so so this would be, uh, the, again, every thread we pull on breaks into multiple pathways. Let, let me quickly cover. This is one of the reasons that I'm such an advocate of the use of testosterone in women. Okay. Testosterone is really the only anabolic steroid in common use in our community that you could administer a woman and then send her to a pathology laboratory and on demand, call up a hormonal profile that basically says, so we, we administered this much of the drug and we saw this much serum response. It's the only one. Yep. And that is very interesting for us because then we can basically you know, start with a strategy, administer the strategy, and then titrate for effect. Yeah. That makes that drug very interesting. The second thing is you really don't have a quality problem with testosterone in the world today. Yeah. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but most of the problems around drug quality uh, revolve around the more expensive anabolic steroids like Anavar and Primabol. And, and, and the reason behind that is if you're going to go that trouble of counterfeiting a product and selling a product, you're not going to do it for something that's very cheap and, and, and easy to access. You're going to move up the food chain and find the more you know, valuable things to counterfeit. Yeah. So I would argue that you should view this sort of filter saying about 50% of the drugs that are marketed globally are as described. The quality problem is profound. It's a huge problem. Yeah. But it does vary based on a couple of things, where you live in the world and how much you know. For example, the people that I deal with, you know, these are legitimate individuals who have the best interests of the, 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 you know, of the community at heart, and they're doing their best to contribute value to the world. 
you know, in our, our world, I should say by that. So I don't really have quality assurance problems of that magnitude with my supply chain. But that's me after doing this for 20 years. Yeah. What I would argue is someone just starting out that doesn't have you know tremendous knowledge on these things is the most vulnerable for the people that just sell stuff. Yeah. Because it's fair to say that you know finding a source of these things is incredibly easy. Yeah. Ensuring that what you got when you paid for it is as described on the label as the challenge. So absolutely there's a question, but it's not a blanket problem. It 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 changes on who are we talking about? You're talking about my supply chain or you're talking about Billy Bob's supply chain. That's that's a different conversation. And then also where you live in the world, understanding that there are, I, th- I think if I'm correct, there's 197 countries in the world. A lot of people tend to think in terms of where they live in the world. They, that's how they, they, their framework was. I live in Southeast Asia. This is a, a place that I chose to live because they're incredible. I mean, literally, I walk into the pharmacy and I point to the insulin and they, and they hand it over the counter to me. You know, I don't have to worry about you know half of the things that I source. Agreed, I cannot source everything in my models across the pharmacy counter. Agreed. But a significant percentage of things, I want to use the drug telemesartan, for example, as a prophylactic treatment against many of the ills that plague our tribe. My local pharmacy sells it to me across the counter, no questions asked. So when you talk about legalities and when you talk about supply chain, it is a moving conversation that varies based on where you live in the world and how much exposure and experience you have. And it ranges from incredibly difficult, I'm very empathetic to certain people, like if you live in Australia and you don't know very much, or you live in New Zealand and you don't know very much, this is a huge problem versus for me, it's like, what, what, what are you talking about? Like, you're, it's not legal. I can use these drugs because I can buy them in the pharmacy. Why They're did not. you do that there versus like we had the war on drugs here. So, uh, so these drugs that we're talking about are classified in the same category as heroin, right? Here in the uh, United States where we are. Every every country has its own laws regarding supply chain. Yeah, It is illegal to sell these drugs without a pharmaceutical license in Thailand. Yeah, So I can't, excuse me, let me say this. I can't set up shop to sell them. But I'm saying as a consumer, I can walk into a pharmacy and and buy some testosterone over the counter and the guy has a pharmaceutical license to sell it to me. The the legal requirements for him to provide it to me are different than they are in the US compared to Southeast Asia. Yeah. So when people think in terms of legal, you have to understand, but there's 197 countries in the world. There's only three or four of them that it's illegal. Really? You guys have very, very tight controls on this. And, and part of the reason behind that is it's a very litigious society. I, mean, I go to my doctor. He's fascinated by everything I do. He wants to know everything. He's like, you know, he's like a sponge. I, I remember I cut myself a while ago. I'm, I, I'd like to do enduro motorcycles. I'm quite the outdoors kind of guy here. And I cut myself and he was going to stitch it. And I said, can you glue it? And he says, well, I've never done it before, but I happen to have a go at it. Like, and he just glued it like, in the US, you would get berated because you don't tell doctors what to do. They, they will determine the treatment <laughs> pathway. And he, he looked at it and went, yeah, why not? Let's do that. Why? Because I can't sue him. There is no right of, you know, like if, if you go into a, 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 a hospital here and you get your treatment, you're entitled to a certain standard of care, but there is not the same legal, you know, issues that you need to go through. And it's the same in a pharmacy. If I go and buy 
uh, you know, testosterone across the pharmacy counter and I self-administer it and self-abuse it and get myself into trouble, I can't go back, you know, with my legal team to sue the pharmacist. You can in the US. So this is the great interesting is sometimes people don't realize, but you guys brought that on yourselves. You know, like people go, oh, it's the government, it's the government. You're going, well, yeah, kind of, sort of, but you have to understand you have such a litigious society that if you go around suing everyone all the time, all of the all of the channels get tightened down. One of the things about Thailand is I can't sue my pharmacist for what I do with the drugs that he hands across the counter for him. So it's much easier for me to get access to things that I want. Were you being literal when you said there's three countries that it's that drug, these drugs are illegal? No, 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 <clears throat> no. What, what, what I meant three? was there's there's a, there's 197 countries in the world. Yeah, I think that's right. From right, what I would argue is. Places like the UK are in the middle ground. What I mean by that is uh, possession for personal use is not illegal. Yeah, it's a middle ground thing. It's kind of like, you know, where the marijuana debate is now a little bit. You know, like you can, okay, you can have three splits, but you can't have like 16 bushes growing in the backyard. Yeah. So the UK is different than Australia. Australia is like, it's kind of like, you know, I would argue that Australia, New Zealand, and some of the Nordic countries have the toughest legislation there is. Yeah. America's the middle ground. You mean like there's like you can kind of there's loopholes. You can go to a, a hormone, you know, therapy type facility that is kind of sort of masquerading as a, you know, as a quasi supply. Like it's a really fine line. It's like you're going, okay, so if if you think about it, there's just a sliding scale of the ability to access these compounds at fair prices that varies from country to country. And what I would argue is that many of the people in our community, Australians, I'm Australian, that's one of the top three countries in the world that are hard. Yeah. You know, we're, a classic one is if you go to Dubai, people have this idea of when I go to Kuwait or when I go to Dubai, that everything is you know in, like easy to get, and you know you just walk into a pharmacy and get it. That's actually a fallacy, but there is it's a much easier supply chain than the U.S. Interesting. Yeah. So complicated subject, but I think it's 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 enough to say when you when you when you take the global stage and you look at it, it varies so widely that it's very hard to say anything. Nothing that I am doing today, because I do not sell drugs, I use drugs, and I talk to people about self-administration in the country that I reside in, nothing I do is illegal. I think this is why, if I am to interpret what you're doing, is what you're doing is having the conversation. You're, you're, you know, you open up the conversation so that we can understand and question why. Why? We're supposed to be a free country here in the United States, you know, liberty, freedom, choice. and it no one questions and i think that not only <laughs> you know, that but like, when you do when people when you bring up subjects that are uncomfortable for people the first initial response is rejection and of that's course. just kind of how it is anything new is just like <gasps> it's so uncomfortable for mm. people to even like you talked about the conversation even, about even, even trans it, and it's like you're not trying to be offensive and i think a lot of women it's uncomfortable <laughs> if they did unfortunately accidentally go that route and would on a on a blood if you actually analyze their blood and it was a chemical sex change, you know, that would be horrifying. And, and I can imagine that if it was unintended, they didn't know what was going to happen. And then this happened, they don't want you to say, well, you're a man because they're like, no, I'm not, but you're telling them that they are and they're So I think there's that discomfort level too, because these conversations are uncomfortable. I think the conversation I, I, is I too, right? Like it's, it's, we're all human. 
yeah, we're all born a certain way, male, female, and we all try to identify and coexist within this human existence. But if mm-hmm. we stop trying to segregate too much, even though we are not equal, we all have our strengths and our individuality, we still are one species. You know what I mean? Like, why can't we just coexist as one human species as opposed to bringing up, bringing down? And, mm-hmm. and maybe the conversations, maybe the questions would be better. You know what I mean? Maybe we'd be moving in a more positive direction of how to sustain and coexist in a healthier manner as one population, as, as opposed mm-hmm. to a segregated idea. So if I can try to summarize the whole, the whole point I'm making is, in my opinion, we are collectively as a tribe moving forward the discussion. Yeah. What, what should the strategy be? And I just, you know, the, the, the reason that you just said then, it's uncomfortable. A lot of these things are uncomfortable conversations. And I've, the person that's chosen to wade into the, the thick of it and, 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 and start the conversation. I don't mean to cause offense to the transgender community, to anyone. Like, but, but the reality is, is, as I said, these are very interesting subjects that if you're going to talk about the applications of androgens in females and you're worried about the deleterious effects or consequence of that, then you can't not have that conversation. Station. It's it's disingenuous to not have that conversation at some point. You don't need to hyper to go onto the table so we can move forward, we can move forward, we can move forward. So yeah, I I I think all of these dialogues, all of these things are threads that each one of them, you know, in their own right, you can grab and pull on, and, and each one becomes a podcast in its own right almost. You could talk for, for hours and hours and hours about all these things. I just happen to be the guy that's wanting to instigate the dialogue. I want to have the conversation about what we did historically was not based on clinical practice. It was based on bro science. That's true in terms of training, in terms of nutrition, in terms of supplementation, and in terms of enhancement. Over the last 15 years, we've moved a long way forward in these other areas, but this is the first time that we're moving the conversation forward in the era specifically of enhancement with regard of bringing forward clinical evidence to support arguments. Victor, this was such an incredible conversation with you. I can't thank you enough for your time. And I think the audience, if they want to learn more from Victor, he is very, very, you put, you put out some great content and great controversial topics on your Instagram, <laughs> which is Prep Coach Academy. That's how they find you on Instagram. If you want to share where else they can find you, that would be wonderful. Yeah, so I, I kind of, uh, unashamedly, like any small business, I have marketing content and you know, I'm trying to tell people what we're all about. That really comes from doing podcasts like this, my own YouTube content and my Instagram account, Victor Black Masterclass. The Prep Coach Academy material is really the material I hold behind my paywall. Obviously, like, like many people that create intent, I have free content that I put out to raise awareness and to trigger conversations and to encourage engagement. And then I have paid materials that lie behind. So the reason I say that is if you go to Prep Coach Academy, you'll see it's kind of blocked off. That's that's for members as it were. So in the first instance, what I would encourage guys to do is to go to my YouTube channel, which is Victor Black Masterclass. I have many sim, sim, different subjects, but similar format where we have a podcast with, with guests that I either have invited to come on the show or I've gone on their show. I would just say watch three or four or five hours worth of these conversations. And if, if these conversations interest you and inspire you, then understand that I have a, a, a paywall section as well, a members only area as well. Yeah. And so the Instagram that is not the paid one is Victor Black Masterclass, correct? 
Correct. Thank you. Yes, but start on the YouTube versus Victor Black Masterclass on YouTube. Yeah, lo- lo- lots of lots of great free content there on 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 every aspect of enhancement practice. Victor, what a great conversation. Listen, we're about to take this podcast on the road. Uh, we're jumping in, in a minivan, hitting literally <laughs> yeah, this literally. week. And awesome. uh, we're, we're traveling the country. We're going to be hitting many different gyms and setting up different podcasts with different people all around in what you're calling our tribe and bodybuilding and fitness and music for me. Just a little hint. Anyway, hopefully, I'm just putting it out there at some point. We're going to get our asses to Thailand. Oh, my God. Yeah. To go to Thailand. I and when that day comes, oh, my God, like we got to hook up. <laughs> you guys, you guys let us know when you get up. This way. I, I'm up in Chiang Mai. I don't know whether you know the geography of Thailand, Thailand, but I'm right at the right at the top. OK, so if you get if you get up to the mountains in Chiang Mai, you let me know and I'll uh, love to catch up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is it can any uh, like uh, base jumping or anything? Any big cliffs or anything like uh, <laughs> there's, there's there's a lot of things to do. Whitewater, right? There's no there's no base jumping. There is a there's some some climbing, but it's uh we, we don't have huge mountain ranges in Thailand. I'm sure you appreciate that. It's okay. like, we, we do, we do have mountains. So it's, there's white whitewater rafting and I'm very much into the, I don't know whether you know what enduro dirt bikes are, but I love the, the off-road dirt racing and stuff like that. So oh, we'll, we'll get, we'll get, yeah, and have some fun. Yeah. I just, I just sprained my ankle thinking I was 15 again and jumped back into BMX biking. <laughs> Got into an argument with the orthopedic. <laughs> she didn't want me to do anything for six weeks. I, I'm leg pressing two weeks later. So I have nothing but appreciation for, for the extreme orthopedic sports. orthopedic said, don't even go for a walk in the mall. And what did you do? You purposely walked around because she told you not In flip-flops, too. I had to make sure those muscles were active. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much again, Victor Black. You are in a wealth of knowledge. And thank you so much for your time. Once again, Victor Black Masterclass on YouTube and also on Instagram. And we will stay tuned. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Ever wonder if you are posing correctly for your division? Learn to Pose is dedicated to taking out the guesswork on how to pose for all categories in bodybuilding. Learn five ways you can improve your posing skills in five minutes guaranteed at www.learntopose.com. There are free posing tutorials available for the bikini, figure, and men's physique categories. More on the way for other divisions in bodybuilding. It's free, so go access your free posing tutorial for bikini, figure, or men's physique at learntopose.com.